Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back again. Harold Hutchinson, Head of UK Equity Research at Investech. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by our two senior energy analysts, Martin Young and Mark Elliott. And the topic today is the recent energy white paper. Uh, I suppose at risk of confusing government terminology, we might call it the green white paper. But uh, to kick it off, Martin, could you just tell us was there anything specific jumped out as you read it? Yeah, thank, thanks, Harold. And hello again to everyone from me. And now a lot of what was in the white paper had actually already been set out in the raft of publications that we have seen in the past month or so. But there are a number of proposals that I wanted to flag uh, to listeners. Uh, two of those are headline grabbers namely the plans to consult on opt-in and opt-out switching, and the aim to bring at least one large-scale nuclear project to the point of final investment decision by the end of this parliament. The latter sees negotiations opened with EDF in respect of Sizewell C. Other things I wanted to flag include the ownership structure of the electricity system operator, a vision guide from government for Ofgem, the possibility of competition in onshore networks, and positive noises being made about BECS, that's bioenergy carbon capture and storage, where we suggest that Drax is likely to be in the box seat. Okay, um, thanks for that, Martin. Uh, I'm thinking, as always, retail is up there amongst the issues. Uh, I find it quite hard to understand exactly what is going on at the moment. Do you have a view? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're not wrong in hinting that it appears to be a bit like Groundhog Day on, on retail. If we look back uh, over the past decade, Ofgem launched a retail market review in 2010. That concluded in 2013. However, it then subsequently referred the energy market to the CMA in 2014, and the CMA published its final report in 2016. Since then, governments legislated for a cap on, on default tariffs. So forgive me uh, for having a degree of scepticism in questioning why, if the all has gone before appears to have come up short, why yet another consultation will find the solution. And I think being frank about these mooted measures, they do create a period of uncertainty for suppliers. But those in respect of opt-out and opt-out switching are actually short on detail in my view and long on political soundbite. I think opt-in switching appears to be a successor mechanism to the price cap, given the suggestions of its implementation in 2024. And opt-out switching, well, that might not cover all of the market, given that it needs to be decided who will be targeted for inclusion in such a measure. Now, I think if you stand back and look at the supply market, as a whole, it's loss-making. And if we have the assumption that suppliers actually do want to make a profit, I think what we actually might see out of all of this is a compression of the differential between the cheapest and most expensive tariffs in the market, as well as a reduction in the range of tariffs on offer. I'm very much of the view that smaller suppliers could find the market tougher and that we will see more supplier failure as a consequence. Traffic to price comparison websites could also reduce if customers actually become more confident that they are on a good deal. And all of this would happen at exactly the same time that suppliers need to have confidence in the market framework so that they can bring forward the innovative products and tariffs that the energy transition needs. Now, if the market does move to, to lower price differentials, I think what we're looking at in terms of success 
are people who have brand, quality customer service, and a decent product offering. Those with critical mass and those who can hedge risk should be in a better place in my view, but being efficient is an absolute necessity. So if you look at the likes of Centrica and other legacy suppliers, the challenge is most definitely to become more efficient and smarter. So in a nutshell, this consultation brings noise, but I think looking longer term, there's also opportunity, particularly as the white paper recognises the possibility of energy as a service. And I think that's an area where the likes of British Gas Services have a strong platform for Centrica to build on. Uh, okay, uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Martin. Um, Mark, I'm just thinking while we're on this topic, clearly one of the areas in the supply market relates to metering, how important that is, why it's important. Uh, anything that you would like to highlight there before we move on? Yeah, thank you, Harold. I think uh, smart meters are sort of intrinsic to being able to sort of help our energy systems and, and I, in my view, sort of bring the consumers into clearer participation in decarbonizing. I, it's a way for people to be, to see, uh, to have the granularity in, in your, your pricing framework to charge for carbon emissions. So if let's say a home is, is uh, has its power consumption needs of an evening and it needs uh, fossil generation to come on stream to meet those needs, and then, then it's the way that it can be priced accordingly rather than sort of flat tariffs. So you'll get the granular um, half hourly charging rates that can take effect and then dynamic pricing, which therefore enables the consumer to respond to uh, market needs and pricing. So the, the consumer is effectively able to participate with these various agendas. So uh, smart metering is essential to enable that to happen. Otherwise, the burden rests on sort of industry and generators um, with the consumer just being the price taker. Right. Yeah, that, that makes that makes sense. I mean, Martin, as you said, there's so much in this white paper, but I guess one of the things that sort of stood out to me was the good old nuclear card is still on the agenda. Clearly, it's contentious. I mean, 70 years of cost escalation and legacy waste doesn't sound to me like a resounding backdrop from new nuclear. But uh, what 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 stuck out to you in terms of what uh, the, the government's saying about nuclear? Yeah, um, to be fair, nuclear, I think, is 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 a tricky one. The way I want to approach this and the way I think about this is, you know, let's start with the known knowns here. Yeah, undoubtedly, there's going to be more demand for electricity and undoubtedly there's going to be significantly more renewable capacity, both onshore and offshore wind and solar. The cost reduction delivered by all three uh, technologies has been phenomenal. And looking at generation cost alone, offshore wind is the lowest cost technology for gigawatt sized capacity. But given the intermittent nature of renewables, there is a need for resilient low carbon generation to provide system security and keep the lights on, as they say. And I think in thinking about how that can be provided, you have to think about whole system costs. Bayes has actually done that. And alongside the white paper, it published a very interesting body of work entitled Modeling 2050 Electricity System Analysis. Now, this piece of work modeled 3,360 unique low carbon mixes and distilled it into system costs for low and high demand scenarios and various mixes of CCUS equipped gas 
and nuclear for carbon intensities of 5 to 25 grams per kilowatt hour, all on a pre-BEX basis. Now, Bayes has no, no bets on the optimal capacity mix. But what struck me from their modeling was that it actually outturned low cost solutions with limited nuclear in the mix, particularly so if the 2050 system has 20 terawatt hours of hydrogen fired generation in the mix. So against that backdrop, I really do question whether we need nuclear over and above Hinkley Point C and a 20 year life extension to the sizable B PWR plant. After all, nuclear is an industry that unfortunately has been riddled with delays and cost overruns. There might be some listeners out there who have long memories, who can remember uh, EDF's Investor Day back at the end of 2008, in which it set out an expectation of commissioning the first EPR in 2017 and having our Christmas turkeys in 2017 cooked by Hinkley Point Juice and a total production cost of 42 to 45 pounds in 2008 money per megawatt hour. Instead, what have we got? We've had cost overruns, a much delayed Hinkley Point that will not start generating until the end of 2025, and all of that priced at £92.50 per megawatt hour in 2012 money. So it hasn't covered itself in glory. Governments made it clear that approval of size will see is subject to clear value for money. But I think if you push me, and if you really do believe that the government is supportive and sees CCUS coming forward and hydrogen generation and also flexibility, then I do feel it should walk away from large scale nuclear and focus on the technologies that are smaller and offer significant learning curve opportunities. That's interesting, uh, Martin, and especially that you raised the uh, the hydrogen issue. Um, now, Mark, I guess then if we're not going to have a lot of nuclear, we're not talking about yellow hydrogen. But uh, you, look, one of the problems I have with this hydrogen idea is let's get real. Over 90% of hydrogen production today is very dirty production, right? So what are the realistic prospects for integrating green hydrogen into the UK energy mix in any sort of reasonable time scale. How do you how do you reconcile those difficult issues? To be frank, it's it's the way green hydrogen, I believe, is first sort of going to start making serious inroads into the broader uh, energy system is actually going to be closer to sources of consumption. I mean, the barrier to entry with hyd uh, to handle hydrogen is quite high. It's an exceptionally flammable gas. It's difficult to manage. It's uh, low energy density by volume, high energy density by mass. Um, and it needs all sorts of sort of new technologies if you're going to go particularly down the route of pure hydrogen eventually, you know, new pumping systems, et cetera, et cetera. Not that the gas created can't be adopted and is will in time be adopted and co-opted to, to handle high, uh, you know, even pure hydrogen in time. I think it has to develop upstream close to sources of industries. So you've got the project which ITM is working with alongside Orsted and Lip 66 of Hornsey One, where they're going to take the green hydrogen and basically pipe it into the Philip 66 refinery, which are already big users of, of, hyd of hydrogen today from dirty steam methane reforming. 
So that's where I think it's going to start out at. But then in a broader context into sort of other energy needs, notably around heating and into, into gas grids, I think that's going to be a step of gradual evolution and probably orientated around having um, more distributed hydrogen generation at key points across, across a gas grid. Now, policies have yet to kind of delineate how to do that. Um, but that's one route whereby, you know, we can start to legislate in a proportion of green hydrogen to gas mains and, and injection points identified and you have electrolyzers dotted around with which to deliver that. And the other route that hydrogen gets into our system that's also in a kind of more distributed context will be in transport around trains and trucks and things like that, that if we're going to decarbonize those elements of transport, then hydrogen fuel cells offer the best solution by which to do that due to the nature of the, the use case around, you know, range and fast refueling. So there's, there's going to be lots of angles from which it's going to develop. And I think primary is going to start upstream close to industry where it's going to be used and then filtering down uh, in, in a more distributed context. But that'll take time. Yeah, that's a, that, that's interesting. I think um, I think I agree. It will take time. And listening to the two of you talking, I think the one thing that is clear is there is no unique pathway to net zero, and there's still some questions to be answered about which which will turn out to be the uh, the optimal path to go along. Thank you both uh, very much indeed uh, for for our listeners, both Mark and Martin have been working hard on this energy white paper. Um, so I'd encourage you, if you've got further questions, please reach out to either of them. Thanks very much for listening in today.